It's a strange title, isn't it? I'm really surprised Sanford couldn't find a bunch of psalms that talked about the goodness of guilt and shame, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, this is definitely one of those areas that I am excited to be able to go through books of the Bible because this is certainly not a topic that I would think, oh, we need to talk about this. But as you study various scriptures and books and you go through chapters, you begin to see things that are these wonderful gems in God's word that you would miss otherwise. And and this is certainly the case. We're going to do two lessons uh, tonight and next week talking about uh, the goodness of guilt and shame. Tonight's lesson would be the need for shame. And that puts us in Jeremiah chapter 3 tonight. You have your Bibles. That's where we're going to be. Jeremiah chapter 3. And a little bit of a reminder in chapter 2, we saw that the people are, have basically traded God away for worthless things. That Jeremiah tried to illustrate that in terms of a pretty vivid image that you had living, flowing, clean waters and you have exchanged it for broken cisterns that can't hold any water at all. In our language, it would be you traded away the refrigerator water that is clean and right there super easy to drink the pot water in the road that's trying to sit there, catch water, and it can't catch it anyway because it has a hole in it. And so he's trying to communicate to them in these early chapters the problem that they have. And this is going to be one of the problems that is expressed over and over again in the chapter is that they have no shame. Now, for us in our culture, in our society, we are working really hard on trying to make sure nobody has any guilt and nobody has any shame. We all just need to be doing whatever we want to do and we all live how we want to live and we should be guilt-free and shameless in whatever decisions that we make. And in fact, the only guilt or shame you should ever feel is if you're ever trying to make me feel guilty or full of shame. Other than that, we should just be shame-free. And God's going to talk about that right here, that things haven't changed in humanity for thousands and thousands of years. This is the very issue at stake that God is going to address with these people. So you have your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter three, verse one. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would that not greatly pollute the land? You have played the whore with many lovers and would you return to me? First, I want to put forward something that is very strong here is he's trying to give them some clarity and open their eyes to the problem. And he frames it in a way that would have been pretty jarring because he's using a picture from Deuteronomy 24, which is if you're put away and then you go marry another and marry another and marry another, can you come back to the first one? Deuteronomy 24 said, no, you're not supposed to do that. And so now here is this picture of God saying, so how do you think you're supposed to come back to me? It's a pretty powerful image that he uses. You have had, verse 1, all of these lovers. You have played door with all kinds of lovers. And he's describing their, their immorality in regards to their idolatry, that they, and all the foreign gods that they have been keeping. And he says, so he puts forward this idea, how do you think you're able to come back? Now, before you feel real bad about that, because we're going to talk about that, 
He's going to explain how. He's going to get there. But first, you have to have the clarity that you have no right to come back to God. You're not supposed to come back because you have been so promiscuous against God. In fact, verse 2, look at the question. Lift your eyes into the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have been awaiting lovers. And like the Arab in the wilderness, you have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. He just basically says, I want you to look around the land of Judah and where are not idols? I mean, can you imagine saying that? You're the people of God. He says, just walk outside and look around. Is there somewhere where you don't see an idol? Because he says it's on every hill. It's on every mountain. It's under every tree. There are idols all over the place. So you have been so unfaithful to me. How could you possibly return? How can you possibly come back to God? In fact, God says in verse 3, I've been trying to wake you up. He says in verse 3, therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have a forehead of a prostitute. You have refused to be ashamed. He says in this picture, I've been withholding blessings, trying to wake you up. He says things aren't going very well. And this is me trying to, to, to get your eyes upward, to provide you some clarity, to see what's going on. But he says here, the problem is this. Verse 3 you have refused to be ashamed. You continue to stay in your sins. You won't stop sinning in any regard. In fact, listen to what he says in verse 4. Have you not just now called to me, my father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done. All the evil you could do. <laughs> what an ending to the start of this picture. And I want you to notice the way they are thinking about God. Why are they being so stubborn in their sins? Why are they refusing to be ashamed? Notice in verse 4, we're getting the description that they say, we think that God's going to overlook our sins. Here's their very thought process. He says, haven't you called to me? And notice how they're talking to God. Notice doesn't say that they're not talking to God. Doesn't say that they think they've walked away from God. They're still praying. They're still talking to God. They're still worshiping God. And here's their wording. You're our friend from our youth. You've always been with us. And you can think about that on an individual level in your whole life. And then think about it in Israel's history. Lord, you've been our God from the very beginning from the Exodus. And what they think is, you'll notice in verse 5, God's not going to be angry forever. Yeah, he's mad at our sins. But he won't stay angry, right? I mean, we've been with him all this time. He's going to be okay with it. And God says, here's your problem. You have done all the evil you can do. I, I don't even know how to quantify that image. But just let the weight of that statement hit you. You have done all the evil you could possibly conjure up. You have committed everything against me. And so he gives them that picture before them that here is your problem. You should be ashamed. 
You should be ashamed of what you're doing. You should feel the guilt of your sin, of all the wickedness you are doing. And you should be sorrowful about it. But rather than being sorrowful, you're being stubborn. Rather than coming back to God and saying, what can I do? Instead, they're saying, eh, God won't care. God won't be angry forever. He's going to be fine with it. God's going to get over it at some point. He's going to be fine. And so not only if you think about a culture that we live in that is all about no one should feel shame, no one should be ashamed, no one should have guilt. Think about also a religious culture that also says these words. God's going to get over it. God's a gracious God. God's a loving God. He's going to be fine. Yeah, I know it says I shouldn't do that, but he'll get over it. It'll be all right. He'll be fine. It doesn't really matter. 2024, 3,000 years earlier, same idea. Same picture, same problem. So I want you to notice what God's going to do about this. He's going to try to move them to have the guilt and the shame that they need. So verse six, the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah. Now we need to stop there for a minute because talking about the days of Josiah is important. When you think about the kings of Judah, the southern nation, if you grew up in the in the pews and you were in the Bible classes and you had your happy faces and your frowny faces of your Judah kings of Judah picture on your wall, your biggest smiling king is Josiah. Two of the best kings that Judah ever had, Hezekiah and Josiah. And so here we are in the days of Josiah. Remember, he's coming in on the heels of Manasseh, the worst king that had ever ruled over the land. And he's trying to initiate all kinds of spiritual reforms. He's trying to turn the tide. He's trying to bring the people back to God. It's in the days of Josiah that this message comes. And here's what God says. Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? Hold on. That faithless one Israel. Very important to think about. Israel doesn't exist right now. Israel is the northern nation. It got swept away by Assyria. It's already gone in the days of Josiah. It was taken away far earlier. So he's doing a little bit of history and reminding Judah about the northern nation and what happened there. Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the harlot. And I thought after she had done all of this, she would return to me. But she did not return and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So here is God saying, okay, Israel was an example and Israel did all the same things that Judah had done. They were stubborn. They were unashamed. They were full of idols. They were sinning in all the same ways as Israel. And God said, I thought Israel was going to wake up one day and turn back to me. And they never did. Parenthesis, they're not there anymore. They have been judged. Samaria has been destroyed. Israel's been swept away by the Assyrians. Notice the point God makes with this in verse 8. She saw, speaking of Judah, that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. 
declares the Lord. What an interesting picture. God says they didn't learn and they didn't care. And what a shocking thing to say is that in the days of Josiah, that here he is committing to all of these reforms and tearing down idols. And he's trying to restore worship in the temple. And what God says is, you know what? Everything that the people were doing during the reign of Josiah was fake. It was pretense. There was no heart. It was almost as if the people thought, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll straighten all this up and God's going to be happy, but he's not going to see our heart, right? He's not going to know what's inside. And here's God going, yeah, I know exactly what's inside. You were being fake. You were being hypocrites. It wasn't from the heart. You put up the shell. You put up the external. You had the facade, but you didn't come back to me with all of your heart. You didn't learn from Israel. And that is why he calls them more unrighteous. I mean, just imagine that for a minute. Israel had no good kings. And God just turned around and told Judah, you're more unrighteous. Well, and I think for a number of reasons. One, you should have learned from Israel and you saw all the things that they did and you didn't turn after all the events that had happened. And remember all the advantages that Judah has thrown away. They had the kings of David, the lineage of David that was flowing through. They had the temple of God in Jerusalem. They had advantages that Israel did not have. And yet still they didn't learn from the example of Israel. They threw those things away. And so God declares them as unrighteous. And so the point is that Judah knew what their behavior meant and what those consequences were going to be. And they were stubborn and didn't change. Now I want us to see something that is important about this first picture that's given to us here about how they refuse to be ashamed is what God is identifying within the hearts of the people is that because they have a lack of guilt and a lack of shame, there's no way for them to truly come back to God. Everything is done just surface level. Nothing is truly from the heart. There isn't a true repentance. They took their sins lightly. They weren't bothered by their wickedness that they were committing. They figured God would get over it. It was going to be okay, even though their land was full of idols and full of false gods. Friends, let me press this first point to you. We should be terrified when we're no longer bothered by our sins. We should be absolutely terrified when sin no longer moves the needle within our hearts because we've committed it so often. That's what's happened here. They've lost all shame. They've lost all guilt. They've lost all caring because they don't have a heart for God and they no longer have that shame. And that's why they can't repent. We should be frightened when we do not feel guilt for the sins that we have committed. I, 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 I can't tell you how many times I have sat down with people who claim to be followers of Jesus and who have committed grievous sins and serious sins, notable sins or important sins, and hear them seem to say the words of sorrow but you can see in their eyes, this isn't from the heart. It's just words. 
to go to someone and convict them of sin and they just sit there and look at you and go, okay, yeah, I understand. And there's no devastation. There's no brokenness. There's no sorrow. There's no, oh, you're right. There's no anything. It's just the look of, okay, what do I need to do to end this conversation? That's the people of Judah right now. And it is a deep warning that we are not those kinds of people because, friends, there has to be guilt and shame to provoke repentance. The need for guilt and shame, the goodness of guilt and shame is that that feeling is to propel us to a repentance. And here's God saying, I'm withholding blessings. I'm trying to get you to open your eyes. I want you to see the depths of your sin and you won't come back because you're not ashamed. You just don't care anymore. And if you don't care, you can never come back to God. And I want you to see how God presses that even more in the next few verses. Notice in verse 12 what God says. He says something that I think should be awfully startling. See if it it startles you when, when, when you read this. Verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Now he says, let's talk to the north. Remember, they're treacherous. They're already gone. They don't exist. They've been wiped out for their sins. God said, I gave them a certificate of divorce and sent them away because of their idolatry and their shamelessness. And now God says, return to me. Now, remember what he just said back in verse one. He said back in verse one, return is impossible. You think you can return to me? That, that's, it would defile the land, such, such an idea. And now he turns around and says, but God is merciful and he will not be angry forever. Now, do you see the problem? Here's the problem. Didn't we just read in verses four and five, the people of Judah were saying, God's not going to be angry forever. God is merciful. He's going to get over it. Doesn't it sound like the people are right? The people are saying, well, God won't be angry forever. His character is greater than that. And he's being merciful to us. And not only that, now we have seven verses later. God says, I will be merciful. I won't be angry forever. Did he just validate the the, the people? Why was he condemning them? I want you to notice how he says return is possible. Verse 13, only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among the foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city, two from a family. And I will bring you to Zion. Notice what is needed. Only acknowledge your guilt. Why can't the people come back? Because they have no guilt. They have no shame. 
They see what they're doing is fine. And here's God saying, no, I need you to have that guilt. I need you to have that shame because that's what you're supposed to do is admit and acknowledge that you have rebelled against the Lord to admit your guilt, confess what you've done. And I want us to see the goodness of guilt and shame here that God is saying, when you have that, use that. Acknowledge your guilt. Now, here's our problem. What's the thing that we typically do? And it's the worst thing that we do. We take guilt and shame and we try to suppress it. We go, well, it wasn't that bad. It's all right. You don't understand. I'm only human. It's their fault. We come up with all the reasons why we shouldn't feel guilty, why we shouldn't feel any shame. And I want you to hear God say, no, I need you to acknowledge that. Don't suppress that. That's the worst thing you could do. Don't ignore your shame. But guilt and shame are blessings from God to move us to repentance. And friends, the first step in experiencing the mercy of God and to return to him is to acknowledge your guilt. As I illustrated earlier, I will compound the same thing. I cannot tell you how many times I have sat in front of people who have tried to tell me, well, they've done nothing wrong with the straightest face possible. I didn't do anything wrong. Well, here's all the evidence of everything you've done. I don't haven't done anything wrong. The worst thing you can do for yourself is to have a heart that refuses to acknowledge the rightful guilt and shame that comes from sin. It's the worst thing you can do is to try to suppress that and ignore it and hide it and deny it to pretend like there's nothing wrong. Because here's the issue. God doesn't say that the problem is that they committed sin. He says the problem is you won't admit it. That's your problem. The problem is you won't acknowledge it. And I think that is so important that we recognize that our guilt and our shame is supposed to move us to to confession. That's the very purpose of it is to acknowledge it and go, I have sinned. I have done wrong. What made David a man after God's own heart? Because he finally confessed it. It finally sunk in. He finally got away from trying to do the cover up and the hiding and all of that. And finally was willing to say, okay, I have sinned. And friends, I want to underscore to us that we can't return to God without confession. If we think we can just come before God and we can just kind of do, a, you know, God, I, you know, I, I, I'm a sinner. There's nowhere in the scriptures that says that's enough. If you are broken by your sin and you are crushed by the weight of it, that's not how you're talking to God. You're not coming to God and going, well, you know, I I know I've done some things wrong. But there is an earnestness and a genuineness and a brokenness that comes from understanding that we have rebelled against the Lord our God. The Apostle Paul said it this way. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. (laughs) Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. 
For you felt a godly grief and that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. I love how Paul says that. He goes, you know, yeah, I felt bad, but I didn't regret that. I had to confront you. I had to make you feel the weight of your sin. You needed guilt and shame. You needed to have that experience so that it would move you to godly sorrow and that would lead you to repentance. If we don't feel the weight of that, we could never move to that godly grief which would produce a repentance. Instead, what we have is a worldly grief. We're sorry that you found out. (laughs) How many sins are that? I'm sorry that you know. And now that you know, what can I get you to do to not tell anybody else? Because I just need to cover this up and hide. And that's what leads to death. A godly grief produces a repentance and a confession that leads to a salvation. That there is no regret whatsoever. What Paul is saying about those Corinthians is they were willing to acknowledge what they have done. Don't have time, but if you read more of that, he says earlier in that very chapter, what earnestness. Just He is floored by their overwhelming brokenness after God, after God had convicted them through Paul's letter. That you had such earnestness, such longing, that you had that kind of response. That's exactly what's supposed to happen, is a calling out to God. Friends, God will not be angry with us if we will only acknowledge our guilt, be cut to the heart, be broken by our sins, and confess your sins to God. All right. This is like the halfway point of the lesson, so I, have to, I want to spend, spend this moment here. Not halfway point tonight. Halfway point of the chapter. You're like, oh, no. Halfway point. (laughs) Halfway point in the chapter. (laughs) But I want you to see there are now four points here that God is going to say that he says, here's why you need that guilt and shame, because here's what I'm trying to do for you. If you'd acknowledge your guilt, you'd acknowledge and confess that sin. He says, here's here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Listen to verse 15. He says, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. What an amazing first thing God says is if you just acknowledge your guilt, if you would confess your sins, if you would understand that you've rebelled against the Lord, here's what I can do for you. Number one, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you and feed you. And I think there are two pictures involved. Small picture, big picture. Small picture, first four verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. The responsibility of human shepherds to be people after God's own heart who will lead and feed the flock. I will give you those kinds of people. They are a blessing to a church. And that's what needs to happen amongst the flock of God is that there would be shepherds, as Peter describes, and they're not doing it selfishly. It's not for gain. 
They love the flock and they're trying to lead them and feed them. And he says, that's what I'll give you. That's the smaller picture. The bigger picture is the verse that comes right after that. And then when the chief shepherd appears, here's your great shepherd. Here's Jesus, John 10. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who cares for you. I'm your ultimate hope. I'm the ultimate reality that I will come and I will lead you and I will feed you and I will bring you into that promised land. Here's God predicting that and saying, here's what I would give you if you just acknowledge your sin and confess what you've done. If you would just accept that guilt and shame and come back to me, I will give you leaders who will bring you in righteousness and I will give you the good shepherd, Jesus himself, God himself, who will be the perfect shepherd that all of us need. To lead us and feed us so that we can be in right right relationship with God. Number two, look at verse 16. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. Well, that's quite a statement. (laughs) All right. He just said, second, the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to make everybody forget about it. They won't remember it. They won't care anymore and they'll never rebuild it. All right. Well, to understand this, let's back up a little bit. What did the Ark of the Covenant represent? I think two critical facets are given to us about the Ark of the Covenant. It was the very presence of God. And you might remember that between the cherubim on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, that lid was considered the place of atonement. Thus, it sat in the Holy of Holies, where once a year the high priest would come in and sprinkle the blood on that lid, that mercy seat, that atonement cover. And thus, atonement would be made for the people. So it was God's presence there. And now he says, here's what's going to happen. My presence is no longer going to be visualized by a gold box. Well, it makes you wonder, well, what's he going to do that would make his people no longer care about a gold box and never remember it or ever think about it again? Well, when Jesus walks on the scene, how many times he said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The glory of God, the glory of the Father is in me. Or I love how Hebrews puts it in the the third verse of Hebrews 1. The exact image or representation of God. You are seeing God himself in, in Christ. You don't need a gold box. Because he's the presence of God. He's the place of atonement. When he comes, you won't need to be thinking about a physical box anymore. I'll make it where it's never made or ever remembered again. He's trying to move the people to be ready for what God would be able to do. Number three, verse 17. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall be gathered to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. Listen to it. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Number three. God's people are going to have a different heart. There is one very simple but important characteristic that we cannot have to be his people. We can't 
be stubborn about our sins. That's what he just said. My people will not have that kind of heart. They will no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. They will not do it. Friends, God's people are a people that are characterized by repentance. We are a people who are constantly repenting that we're not covering up sin. We're not hiding sin. We are confessing sin. We are repentant. We are convicted. We allow that guilt and shame to move us to go back toward God rather than trying to say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's fine. Who really cares? Here he's predicting and prophesying there will be a day when God's people will be a people who are not a stubborn people in their sins, but they are repentant people and they are confessing people. And finally, in verse 18, he says, in those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for an inheritance. Final picture And I'm trying to accomplish a great restoration. People from all over the earth coming together. Israel and Judah joined together. One of the great places to read about that is Ephesians chapter 2. Here is Christ who has broken down the dividing wall. All hostility is taken away. There is no more Jew, no more Gentile. All the world is able to come and enjoy this restoration. But friends, I want to just zero in on this big picture for this, this evening. We need guilt and shame to enable a genuine return. And our guilt enables us to be clear about our sins. Our shame enables us to have genuine hearts so that we will want restoration. Our guilt moves us to desire a true repentance so that we will confess what we have done. If we will acknowledge our guilt God says, I won't be angry anymore if you'll just admit what you've done. Just admit your sin and bring it to me and my anger will subside and you can be my people and I'll restore you and I'll give you the great shepherd and you'll be my people and you'll be part of the great restoration. You'll have a new heart. Just don't be stubborn in your sin. Acknowledge your guilt and shame. So my big message for you today, don't ignore your guilt. Lean into it. When you have guilt and shame, don't follow the path of the world that says that's bad. Psychology and pop culture right now is that's bad. You need to work on getting rid of your guilt and shame. No, 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 no. God says, use it. That's how you come back to me. That is your trigger to come back and admit what you've done. And God says, if you'll admit it, we're great. But if you hide it, if you deny it, then you can't be my people. What a wonderful God we serve that says, I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm just asking you to acknowledge your sin. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for being an amazing God who understands that we are absolutely sinful people. That, Lord, there's not enough time for us to confess all the things that we have done that have not lived up to your glory and your high standard, that we have not been in your image as you made us. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to always have hearts that are soft and that we would never be stubborn, never be stubborn toward our sin. 
And help us to cultivate within our hearts that feeling of guilt and shame that we need to feel when we have done wrong, when we violated your word, so that we can come back to you and you can give us that healing. Lord, help us to see that you're the one that removes guilt and shame. Now, it's not our job to try to remove it, but we use this to come to you. And that you've made a wonderful promise to us that if we'd only acknowledge it, you said you'd take it away. So, Lord, thank you so much for giving us the cleansing that we need, giving us that wonderful hope. And we thank you that it's through your son that we pray this tonight. Amen. If you had 30 more minutes, I'd just go... When we did the Blood of the Covenant series, do you remember how one of the points was the purification of the guilt of the worshiper inside and out? God is the one who takes care of the guilt and shame. You feel it, you give it to God, God will take care of it. That is our hope that we have, and I want to give that hope to you tonight. Turn away from your sins. Lean into the guilt and shame of what you've done and confess your sins to him with all of your heart. He says, if you will come to me, not in pretense, not stubbornly, but truly with a broken heart, I will receive that. I'll forgive it. I'll cleanse you. I'll purify you. And all of that guilt and all of the sins of the past can be erased from your life. And you can walk clean and whole with him. That's the God that we have. Can we help you do that tonight? Once you come while we stand and while we sing.